good morning. If you have a Bible with you this morning, grab that and turn to Mark chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's a blue one in front of you. Uh, Mark 6 is on page 704 of that because I want you to be able to follow along with us as we read. That way you know I'm not making any of this up. My opinion is irrelevant, uh, but what the Word of God says is the most relevant thing in the world. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 6 this morning. I ask you to join me uh, in a word of prayer. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for each and every person who's here this morning. I thank you, God, even for the baggage that we carry in today. God, our sinful attitudes, our, our habits that are displeasing to you, uh, the junk that we bring in just from life this morning, God, um, the hard weeks that many in this room have had this week, Lord, we, um, we come in with all of it, Lord, and we, um, we're still met by you because of the grace of Jesus Christ and because of the blood of Jesus. And so we're thankful that when we are faithless, you are faithful. Thank you that when we uh, have faced bad circumstances, you are good. Uh, we're thankful that you, um, that you are there with us at all times. And so God, as we unpack uh, this story of your incredible power in Mark 6, I just pray that you would be present, that you would be the one who speaks, uh, that you would be the one that teaches, that you would just overcome us. You would overcome our sinfulness, you would overcome the circumstances of our lives and help us just to hear directly from you today. And Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple weeks ago, uh, I was gone, we were out of town because... Uh, my family and I went camping up for a few days in Michigan, and one of the benefits of camping, one of the uh, desires of it is that you actually get out of your normal routine, right? You get into a different environment, you get, uh, you get away from what you're used to, and uh, this can present, as good as it is, this can present a, a challenge with small children, however. Uh, because we've discovered, Chris and I have discovered, that our daughters work uh, best on routine, right? When we keep to their normal schedule, when we have a set bedtime, when they know what's coming, when they know what to expect then our lives are easier as parents because they're just easier kids to deal with. Or they're just happier. Um, what we discovered, as you probably all have, have children, it's not always possible to stick to a routine. And when you're camping, it's entirely impossible. Um, number one, the, the campsite we were at was just crawling with kids uh, who weren't being told to go to bed. Right? So I'm trying to get our daughters to go to bed, and they're looking out and seeing all these kids who aren't being told to go to bed. That doesn't happen. That doesn't go very well. And then secondly, daylight savings time made it get dark like 1030, you know, um, and that doesn't work great for an 8 p.m. bedtime. Uh, quiet hours at the camp start at 11, um, and when you're in a little pop-up camper or a tent, it's not exactly soundproof, right? So there's a ton of noise coming in. So due to all this, we just gave up, and they just went to bed much later. Um, and if you um, no children, you know they have this really illogical part to them, that the more tired they are, the less they want to sleep. And it just makes no sense to me at all, but this is how it is. And so, uh, and putting them to bed later took a whole lot more effort and work. And so, um, Gemma kept requiring, Gemma's our four-year-old, kept wanting me to lay in there with her. And so, it wasn't good enough, once I laid in there with her, she had to lay her head on my arm. Um, because she said her body would only fall asleep if her head was on my arm. This body of hers just controls her, you know, um, which made it really hard when she actually fell asleep to try to pull the arm out without waking her up and starting the whole process all over again. Um, but every night as I lay there with Jim, I'd watch, see in the, in the left part of the, of the camp where I'd see Hattie's head, our seven-year-old, just keep popping up and go back down. And then two minutes later, pop up again, go back down. And so finally I was like, Hattie, what, what are you doing? And she was just checking to make sure I hadn't left. 
She was worried that I was going to get bored and go out and sit by the fire and, and hang out with the adults and have fun because you can't do that when you're dad, right? So she, she had to make sure that I was still there. She wanted to make sure that I was in the room or in the camper. And so once she knew I was there, she trusted me for about two minutes and then she'd check again, you know? And I've seen her do this at home and it's always when there are storms. Um, she's still scared by storms and so she'll want me, if there's a storm at bedtime, she'll want me to lay on the floor in her room until she can fall asleep. And as I do, I watch as her her head just pokes out from the corner of the bed, just checking, make sure I haven't snuck out or crawled out, you know. If there's a storm that comes in the middle of the night, she'll wake up without even asking, grab her pillow, come in, set it on the floor in her bedroom, and just lay down there. Because she'd rather be on the floor uh, in our room than, be, uh, than try to sleep in her bed all by herself. And this makes sense because even as adults, whether it's storms, literal or figurative, we all need a little more care during storms, don't we? Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about the difference between people he calls wise and people he calls foolish. And the foolish people, Jesus says, are people who have built their lives on something other than Jesus. They've trusted in something other than Jesus. And so when, not if, but when storms come their way, they don't have a foundation that can withstand anything, and everything comes crashing down around them. Now the wise people, Jesus said, are those who have built their lives and placed their trust and put their hopes in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And for them, not if, but when storms come their way, their foundation stands firm because their foundation is him. The overarching truth of that story is that all, wise and foolish alike, all will face storms, all face things in this life that they're not going to choose themselves. All face things that, that they don't see coming, things they'd rather skip right by, and things that confuse and hurt them. And we're going to take communion together as a church this morning, and I'm, I'm really thankful that I'm thankful every time we do it, but I'm really thankful this morning, because there's many in this room, many in this congregation that I know about, and I'm sure more that I don't, that this was a really difficult week. Storms seem to come in waves this week to the people of FBN, and as a ministry, we've, we've felt it with you. There are weeks, let's just be honest, there are weeks that are just heavy. There are seasons of life that bring challenges. This this was just a crappy week. We can say that. And, and I know not everyone in this room had that experience, but when we see the people that we love facing these things, and the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, that we as the church go through it with them. That we suffer when they suffer. So today, we're just, we just want to take a short break from our Jesus in the Old Testament series. And instead of looking at a passage in the Old Testament and trying to figure out how it points us to Jesus, we just simply wanted to spend time with him. Just to read about something he did, to, to, to read something that he said, and then share a meal with him. Because one of the most helpful things to know, and the most helpful things to be assured of during the storm of life is that he's there. He's still there. So look at me in Mark chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 45. Mark six forty-five says this. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after leaving them, he went up to a mountainside to pray. Now, before we get into the heart of the story that we're going to look at today, there's a couple things I want us to see to set it up. And in verse 45, Mark starts that verse by using the word immediately, which should immediately draw your minds back to what's happened before. Right? Mark is drawing a connection to what's just happened earlier in the chapter. And what has happened earlier in Mark 6 is that Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. So that little handful of food, he produced enough food to feed thousands of people. And we're told it has 12 baskets full of leftovers left over. And he just showed, right? He's just shown these 12 disciples he had the, the immensity of his power. He's just shown them that he has ultimate control over creation. 
It's just an amazing display of his divine supernatural power. And right after that, it says immediately. So this miracle has just happened. Jesus sends his disciples off. He dismisses the crowd. And then he gets alone with God. And he goes up onto the mountain to be alone with his father in prayer. And if you'd first let me establish this this morning before we go any further. If you're within the sound of my voice and you're facing a storm of life right now, something that you weren't ready for, something that you would have never asked for, something that's blindsided you or knocked you to your knees, if that's you and if it's not, it will be soon enough. But if that's you and you need to hear this, now is not the time to pull away from God. It's not the time to withdraw. It's not time to bunker down and run away. Now more than ever, you need to pursue God. You need to pursue his presence. You need to envelop yourself within the community of his people. Because I'm telling you, I've been around long enough to notice the trends. Every single time that someone goes through suffering, they're never the same because you can't go through the press and come out on the other side the same. And it always goes one of two ways. There are people all over this room this morning who would raise their hands and attest to the fact that it is the very hardest moments of life that their faith and reliance on God grew the most. That in those difficult moments, they felt his presence. They felt him carrying them. They felt his peace that didn't make any sense at all at the time to have it. Simply put, even when it got the worst, he was there. He was right there with them. But there are also people that we know and people scattered all over this world who came out on the other side of suffering more bitter and more empty and more jaded and more distant. Because when it came, they withdrew. And they let bitterness take root and they didn't seek refuge in God who loves them or the people of God. And so in this state of isolationism and self-sufficiency, the suffering left their soul darker than it was before. But you see, nobody goes unaffected. It's crucial you don't pull yourself away from God. Think of the picture that we're given here. Jesus, Jesus who was perfect, he was sinless, he was God in the flesh. He needed unbroken intimacy with the Father so much that he pursued it. He sent people away, he sent the disciples away just so he could have this time with his Father. How much more do you and I need it if he, des- if he desired it that way? Especially in the midst of the storm. Okay. Story continues, look at verse 47. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake. And he was alone on land. And he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. And immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And he climbed into the boat with them. And the wind died down, and they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. Now, I want you to know the lake we're dealing with. The sea by Bethsaida was not a huge sea, and it was located in a valley. So picture something in between these. It's it's bigger than Raccoon Lake and smaller than Lake Michigan, okay? Uh, So from the top of the mountain, Jesus could see out quite far. And when Jesus looks out over the lake, he sees that his disciples, who he sent off hours ago, still aren't to the other side. And immediately this is a sign of trouble because the men in that boat aren't rookies. These these are experienced men. A handful of them were fishermen before they left everything to follow Jesus. So they're quite comfortable and quite capable on the waters. But hours have passed by since they got in the boat and they should have have easily been to their destination. But that's not the way it's going. Mark tells us it's almost dawn and they've been rowing all night and they're getting nowhere. And Mark tells us they're in trouble because a storm has come. 
and has come directly against them and the wind is blowing directly against them and has whipped up big waves going directly against them and the storm is doing everything it can to hinder them and slow them and maybe even sink them. And the disciples' response to this storm is a great picture of the human heart when storms come. Because when things come our way that we don't want, right, when we face things that we wouldn't choose, often what we're tempted to do is double down our own self-sufficiency. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to row even harder. Right? I'm going to take this thing head on. I'm going to fix this. I'm going I'm to figure this problem out. I've got all the strength I need in myself. I've got this. And so the disciples do that. They use all their strength and all their expertise and all their experience in the seas. And what does it get them? They struggle and they row all night and they don't get anywhere. Because every now and then we all discover that we're facing something that we can't fix. Something that's beyond us. Something that's, yes, bigger than you. And I want you to know it's not weakness to admit that. It's wisdom. And I want you to see that as long as Jesus stayed on that mountain, as long as those disciples were in the boat, they were rowing and straining and working and being completely defeated by the storm. And then I want you to notice the juxtaposition that we're given here in Mark 6. Because on one hand, we have these 12 young, healthy, strong men, a portion of which are experiencing the seas, and they're giving it everything they have, and the wind and the waves are simply winning. And on the other hand, you have Jesus, who's like, you know what? I think I'm going to go for a walk. I mean, seriously, he, he just looks around and thinks to himself, man, this is a nice night for a stroll. And this is in the text, right? But, but I can't say this for sure, but I like to picture him just kind of casually walking around the water, looking around, whistling, you know, because the storm just doesn't phase him. Because the wind that has brought the boat to a standstill can't even slow him down because the waves and the water that are threatening to sink the boat has no effect on him at all. And he's, Mark tells us he's just going to walk right by them. He's going to pass right by. It's almost comical. And then you've got this weird exchange where he has to clear it up for them. He's not a ghost. And then it gets even better because Mark tells us then he steps into their boat. And when he does, the wind ceases and the storms stop and the waves settle and they're safe and they can go on their way. And there was no straining and no effort and no work on Jesus' part. He just takes a walk and steps in the boat. And the storm fled them. And, and the reaction of his disciples is one of sheer amazement because somehow, some way, Mark tells us that they didn't recall or they didn't fully understand what they'd seen earlier in the day. Somehow they'd forgotten who they were dealing with. Somehow they'd forgotten they were dealing with somebody who had miraculous, unending power. Somehow they just, they just lost sight of who Jesus was. And my theory is this here's what I think happened the storm had become bigger than Jesus to them. So remember, Jesus is back on the shore. He's off doing his thing, right? But the storm is right in front of them. It's the storm that's blowing right in their face. It's the storm that's making their life difficult. It's the storm that was filling the boat with water. So when they tried to face the storm by their own power, instead of calling on him to help, the storm just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And in their minds, Jesus would get smaller and smaller and smaller. To where they forgot that just mere hours earlier, he fed 5,000 people with enough food at his disposal to feed one or two forgot who they were dealing with. They forgot his power. They forgot what he's capable of. See, one of the reasons that you simply can't withdraw from God during the storm is so that you can remember who he is. So you can remember that whatever it is that you're facing, there's a God on your side who has limitless power, and we are told that he can do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine in Ephesians 3. We're told in Colossians 1 that, that he's the one holding all creation together. 
Just Mark 6 alone, we, we've seen Jesus display immense power of feeding thousands of people with a handful of food and walking on water and calming a storm without breaking a sweat. He is displayed as the supreme ruler over all creation. It is at his beck and call. That Jesus can manipulate and move creation as he chooses to do so because his power simply knows no bounds. And he is bigger, he's so much bigger than anything that you're facing today. So we know and we believe as followers of Christ that there simply are no hopeless circumstances. Not with our God. He can show up in a moment and calm the storm. He can, he can appear in an instant and fix everything. He can touch. He can heal. He can reconcile. He's not bound by any of our limitations. He's the God of the universe and his potential is so much greater than anything you can face. And that comforts me. It really does. But it doesn't comfort me fully. Because we also have to ask this question. What about when he doesn't do that? What about when he doesn't show up in miraculous power? See, we're told in the Bible that in the beginning there's this vast emptiness and darkness. And God spoke. He simply spoke. And he, when he did, light and life and all of the universe came into being by the effortless work of his divine, endless power. All of creation is brought forth in existence. And if you keep reading the Bible, you see that through the lives of humans, God keeps displaying this miraculous power. Moses strikes the ground with his staff and the Nile turns to blood and the Red Sea parts and rocks bring forth water where Elijah calls down fire from heaven and it consumes everything on the water-soaked altar on Mount Carmel. Where Elisha lays on the widow's son and, she, and he's brought back to life. And it ramps up even more when Jesus comes on the scene. For, because where Jesus went, waters turned to wine. Those lame and crippled from dirt, birth leapt and danced. The mute were singing. The deaf heard. There was a woman who fought through a crowd just to touch the edge of his clothes. And when she did she was immediately healed of disease that no physician had been able to help her with for 12 years storms ceased demons fled illnesses vanishes all at the sound of his voice Jairus's daughter a widow's only son and Lazarus were all called back from the dead and given new life again and in his greatest act Jesus walks out of his own grave then he, he gives his own followers his, his holy spirit and as we studied acts we saw this immediately they started doing the same things where Peter and John heal the man crippled from birth. Paul casts out demons and heals the sick. Acts 5 tells us that people from all over came to see Peter to be healed of various illnesses. And some of them only needed his shadow to pass by them. And the Bible, from the very first sentence to its very last, has running through its pages story after story after story of God's miraculous, stunning, terrifying, awesome power. And these stories are wondrous and they are incredible and they are true and they are simply not the point. They're not the point of the Bible. And in fact, if we make them the point of the Bible, their very existence can cause anguish in the hearts and minds of believers when life doesn't go as planned. Because tell me, how does a parent who just buried a daughter read Luke 8 where Jesus heals Jairus' daughter and not wonder, why didn't he heal my little girl? Where's my miracle? How does someone who's just poured their heart out to God to just do something, read Psalm 29, where just the sound of his voice is powerful and majestic and can shake mountains and split cedars and not think, why hasn't God just spoken into my circumstance? How does someone who's prayed repeatedly for a loved one and thus far seen no change at all read accounts of people receiving complete freedom from their demons and not wonder, why doesn't that happen when I pray? 
See, the truest test of faith is not how we respond when God moves from heaven in amazing power and does something glorious in our lives, which he chooses to do from time to time. But the truest test of faith is how we respond when it seems that all of heaven is silent to us. What do we do when we call on this power and seemingly get none of it? What do we do when we pray until we can pray no more and have seen no results? What do we do when there are no more tears to cry and all that remains is a nightmarish emptiness and still it's as if God has turned his back and has not moved? See, this is one of the reasons I love the word of God. I love the Bible because in revealing to us God, it also prepares us for everything we're ever going to have to face. Because the Bible isn't just full of stories of God's miraculous power. It's also full of stories of people wondering why God isn't displaying that power in their life or their situation. There's chapter after chapter in the book of Job, of Job asking aloud, God, when are you going to move and when are you going to come to my aid? Jeremiah had one of the most frustrating, least successful ministries ever, and God made sure to include his entire story in the Bible. There's a whole book in the Old Testament called Lamentations. You know what it is? It's just a record of Jeremiah's laments, his grieving, his expression of frustrations. That's all the book is. There are 150 psalms in the book of Psalms. More than 50, more than a third are psalms of lament. Psalms where David and others just pour out their hearts to God, wondering why he isn't answering. Psalms like Psalm 10 where it says, Oh Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I'm in trouble? Psalms like Psalm 13 where it says, How long, oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long are you going to hide your face from me? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice and I find no relief. Those are in the Bible too. You see, we may never understand why in some situations God moves miraculously and does something wondrous. And in others, he withholds the fullness of his miraculous power on this side of heaven. We may not understand it. But you've got to know your life is not a sitcom. It's not a, it's not a TV show where, where a major problem arises and within a time frame of a story that can be told in 30 minutes or less, everything is fixed, everything is peachy, all is well, and you can go on your way. That's just not the human experience. And it's never what we've been promised in the Bible. So what are we promised? Well, if you take a closer look, I believe you can see it here in Mark 6. Because there are things that come before Jesus walked on the water. There are things that come before Jesus ever calmed the storm. There are things that come before he ever did a miracle that bring me great hope. Did you see them? Verse 48, we're told this. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. It's a real simple idea, but to those in our midst facing a storm today, know this, he sees you. He sees He's not turned his back. He's not distant. He sees. And you don't have to keep lifting up your head off the pillow to see if your father is still there. He's there. He sees and he knows and he has a response. Because what did Jesus do when he saw them? He came down off the mountain and he pursued them. He moved towards them. He closed the gap between the disciples and himself. What he did was he inserted himself into the storm. And you need to know that whatever you're facing, he not only sees you, but he's right there. He's pursuing you. And in fact, he has inserted himself into the midst of your storm. Can you see him? Have you made yourself aware of him? And then lastly, in verse 50, he offers them something that's better than a miracle. He offers them something that he offers to us, something that we are guaranteed whether he brings a miracle or not. He simply offers them himself. Because here's what he tells them. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. 
And please note, he tells them that before the winds have died down, before the storm has ceased, before any aspect of their circumstances has changed at all. Jesus says, take heart, take courage, I'm right here with you, you don't need to be afraid. This is Deuteronomy 31 that tells us, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. This is in Joshua 1 where God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is in Isaiah 41 when God says, do not be afraid because I am with you. Do not be discouraged for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous, victorious right hand. This is Hebrews 13, where God says, I will never leave you nor nor forsake you. This is Psalm 34, which says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Again and again and again that we are told that in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the trial, in the midst of our worst moments, what we find when we hit rock bottom is that our God is right there. Right in the middle of the chaos, right in the middle of the mess, right when you're being tossed about, Jesus inserts himself right into your storm. He will be with us. He will go ahead of us. He will live in us. Do you know what the greatest prize of Christianity is? It's actually not that you're forgiven of your sins, which is amazing and wonderful. It's actually not that you get eternal life in heaven. That's beyond wonderful. The great prize of Christianity is that you get Jesus. I get to be in his presence forever when I die, and then I get him now. And so when things are good, I get him. When things are not good, I get him. Because forever I am his and he is mine. And what the follower of Christ discovers as they go through this life is that Jesus is enough. He's enough. His presence is enough because his presence alone does some amazing things. There are people in our midst today, in this very room, who are facing things that should result in endless anxiety and stress and angst. And there's a peace in their soul today. And it's there because Jesus is right there with them. And there are people in this room today, I believe, who are facing a storm and they've done everything they could. They've rode and they've rode and they've rode and they can't fix it. And Jesus says to you, take courage, I'm here. In 2 Corinthians 10, he actually says, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness. So today we're going to confront you with the presence of Jesus this morning by sharing a meal with him. A meal that he arranged, a meal that he commands that we observe for at least two major reasons. Number one, to be reminded of how much he loves us by being reminded of the price that he paid on our behalf. Because it's in the midst of the storm, it's easy to wonder and doubt just how much he loves you, just how good he is. But man, one look at the cross. One glance at Jesus suffering and dying in your place to win you to himself and you're reminded of his endless love and unceasing faithfulness to you. And he commands us to take communion because when you share a meal with someone, it's impossible to ignore them. And today you get to break bread with Jesus. And in this life, it's, it's easy to separate ourselves from his presence. We get busy. We don't pursue quiet times in the word or prayer with him. We let other things distract us. We give other things priority and neglect joining the church and worship. Or we face a storm and it takes all of our attention and it begins to feel bigger to us than God. And in taking communion this morning, I want us all to heed the words of Hebrews 12. And it simply tells us this. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. Man, admittedly, communion can be something that feels routine. If you approach this with apathy, 
but it's designed to be so much more. And so when you come to the table this morning, fix your eyes on Jesus. And for those who are in the midst of the storm, as you dine with him, I want you to hear him today. I want you to hear him saying to you, I know what you're facing. I see what it is you're going through. In fact, I'm right there in the midst of all of it. So find me in your storm. Seek my presence. I'm not far. I'm right there. And no matter how this turns out, I'll be right there with you through the very end. And together with me, you'll discover that no matter what, I'm enough. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful that as a church, we can gather together. And Lord, we can rejoice with those who rejoice. And we can suffer with those who suffer. And so God, for those who had victories this week, for those who had a good week, Lord, I, I'm, we're so grateful and we're thankful. We want to celebrate with them this morning. And God, for those who had a storm and are facing something they would have never chosen and are wondering how they could ever get through this, God, we, we walk into that mess with them. But Lord, we do so with the confidence that you're right there. You're there in the good, you're there in the bad, you're there in the mundane and the ordinary, you're always there. So God, regardless of how good or bad the circumstances of life are, may we commit to, to walking out into our worlds today, tomorrow morning when we go to work, when we go to whatever you have for us with just an awareness that you're right there with us. And that whether we're celebrating, whether we're working, whether we're teaching or coaching or, or building or suffering, Lord, that we can do it all to the glory of Christ. Guys, we come to your table today. I pray that for those who need to be convicted this morning, that your presence would convict them. For those who need to be drawn to you for the first time, God, may there be someone in this room who just surrenders their life to this amazing Jesus for the first time today. For those who need strength, God, may your presence give it to them. For those who need comforted, for those who need hope, for those who just need to see you. Somehow do this in the midst of this room. And we ask this in his name. Amen. We have tables set up in the front and back for you. Um, to take communion when you feel ready. Um, what we ask is that you just come out the center aisles, head up or back to wherever you want to go um, and partake communion there or in your seat, however you want to do it. You can do it individually, you can do it as families, couples. Uh, we'll let it take as long as it needs to take. But before you do, I want to read uh, this to you in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he come. As you come this morning, to the table this morning, please do not be distracted by anything else and just fix your eyes on Christ. You can come as you're ready.